It's time for Recruiting Better with me, Ben Browning. For ambitious recruiters, it's never been tougher to get seen as a trusted advisor and true partner by your candidates and clients. Join me each week as I address your challenges head on, answering questions from recruitment consultants and business leaders. If you're looking for inspiration or insights to help you make more placements, win more new business, find more candidates, or replace long hours with smart moves, then stay tuned. So welcome back everybody to Recruiting Better. This week I'm joined by the one and only Benjamin Dennehy, the UK's most hated sales trainer, the nuclear option, freshly minted sales royalty, um, and the man many people, people claim invented the pattern interrupt. <laughs> Not only is Benjamin an authority on sales, uh, having coached thousands of salespeople and recruiters, and having been a recruiter himself for a short time, his understanding of the psychology of selling is second to none. Benjamin, welcome to the show. Uh, hello, Ben. Thank you for having me on. Um, it's an honor to be here. And uh, like I said, we've tried to organize this so many times, it's always fallen through, but... You finally yeah. got me in a hotel in London, so there we go. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And it's been absolutely worth the wait. So look, what I really want to do today, what, what I wanted to share with the audience today is a conversation with you around the, ta- the difficulties and the challenges that they face when they come to um, selling and doing business development as recruitment consultants. And I've got questions from the audience uh, that I want to run by you and get your take on it. Some questions as well from myself. Um, but really, the aim of today is to leave everybody listening to this show with a better sense of how they can go about using the best techniques in sales to win more consistent, high quality business and to get off the kind of the revenue roller coaster that so many recruiters find themselves on. Benjamin, as I've kind of watched your content on LinkedIn, I think this is true for lots of people. One of the things that really stands out to me is the fact that you... Um, you do something quite uh, quite crafty, I think, actually, very skillfully. You've built an amazing personal brand for yourself without really doing anything that's hugely personal, if you see what I mean. And I'm just curious about that. Was that a, was that a deliberate choice? And I'm interested to know how that's kind of how that brand for you has has really evolved. Yeah, uh, I want to answer that, but what, what, I need to ask for clarity. What do you mean by by doing nothing personal? What what, what do you mean by that? Um, that confuses me. What does that mean? Yeah, sure. So look, a lot of your content, most of the content, and certainly I think maybe going back a little bit before the last 18 months, all of the content that I saw of yours was about predominantly like the problems that you solve and talking to people very directly in very direct terms about the situations that, that that sellers find themselves in and the things that are perhaps holding them back and it wasn't in uh, it wasn't as much around who you are what you stand for what your products or your services are it was much more about i think what people will recognize from you is the style and the problems that you solve and i just wonder how 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 kind of how true that is for you, how, how, how deliberately you kind of worked on curating that, that, that brand for yourself. Uh, well, yeah, it was deliberate because uh, salespeople find us very hard to believe, but they are the most unimportant person in the room. I know I'm a nobody. 
I'm a guy in a stupid red hat who's got very good at using certain communication techniques that's made him a lot of money. And he's helped teach a lot of other people to make a lot of money using the sort of techniques, mindset, and approaches that I use. And I, I, I had to accept that as a salesman, I'm a nobody. I'm literally in there to help another human being figure out for themselves whether or not they need what I have. And that means it's not about me. It's about them. And so when I was creating my brand, I came up with the UK's most hated sales trainer because when I went online and looked at everyone who claimed to be good at selling, all of them were basically, look at me, love me, how amazing aren't I? Number one, top performer, best seller, smash target, every hyperbolic sort of self-gratuitous statement. And I realized no one wants to be hated. Everyone wants to be loved and they're feeding into that pathetic nature that is sales folk. Because remember, most people go into sales not out of choice. It's by default. They needed a job. People who are drawn to it tend to be slightly outgoing, think they got the gift of the gab. You know, they like meeting people. So it's always about me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. And that's so untrue because I can't remember the last time I bought something because the salesman was such a great guy. Yeah, he was so awesome. I just had to. I didn't even need what he wanted, but I just bought it because he was so cool. No. So my whole approach has been, look, I'm an idiot with long hair and a red hat. That, that's irrelevant. What I say works, and it works because I teach it and I do it. And I'm going to focus on what I fix, the problems and pains you suffer from. And if you don't relate to it or like it, then fine, piss off. You don't have to follow me. Don't like my stuff. But if you do resonate with it, and then you see what I do and think, actually, if I do what he says, that will stop happening, then that's it. So the whole brand has been around. You are right. It's never been about me as a person. I am a nobody. A lot of salespeople don't want to admit that. I'm a nobody. I'm just a guy who helps people figure out whether or not they need what I have. That's it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it sounds like such a huge lesson for everybody listening to this as well, right? And that, that piece around the the seller is having having no, you know, of, of, of being no importance, curating perhaps the, the sales process, but but really kind of, you know, very often, I think one of the one of your strongest messages, or one of the things that I always think about when I when I think about the work that you do, is this idea that um, people buy in spite of the salesperson and not because of the salesperson. Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. And what I highlight to people is, um, people buy for their own reasons; they never buy for yours. So everything you're trying to tell someone or convince them of doing is irrelevant because they don't. They got their reasons, and they probably don't want to share with you their real reasons. Because if you knew the real reason, you'd realize how much they wanted what you have or what was driving them. So my goal is to let them do all the talking, let them open up. Um, I'm like a psychiatrist. The most important person in the room is the patient and the patient figuring out what's causing them to have whatever it is that's going on. Because they know the answer. It's in there. And I'm irrelevant. I'm just a guy asking questions, helping them navigate and understand where they're at. So it's about getting your ego out of the way. It's not about pride. You know, I don't punch the sky when I've won a deal. It's, yeah, fuck, I'm great, I'm awesome. No, I used to do that because mm -hmm. it used to give me a sense of satisfaction, but I realized it was all bullshit. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I think a lot of people have taken from listening to your content, watching your videos and things is, is really aligned with that, which is the idea of the upfront contract where you set out the terms of engagement and you remove um, Think It Over. As an, op as an option. So one of the, I think one of the things that I've really enjoyed about 
uh, following your content and, and, and taking from, from the stuff that you've shared, as I say, is when you go into sales meetings, is removing the opportunity for the client to say, hmm, I don't know, and is to kind of lead the narrative in that sense. Yes, uh, you're absolutely right. My job as a salesperson, at the end of every meeting, I want two things to happen. Either we agree to move forwards or we end it. Anything else in between is a waste of time. And it means that if I get something in between, I'm probably talking to the wrong person or I failed in my job to get them to realize or to discover for themselves that they need what I have. So I make it clear, look, if you want to give me a thinking over, look, let's be blunt, sir. You know what it means and I know what it means. Nine times out of 10, what does a thinking over mean? And everybody says it means no. So let's not do that to each other. If you want to give me a thinking over, just say no. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how hard it is to get someone to say no. When you tell them, just give me a no. Yeah? So think it overs mean nothing. Think it overs are good for crap salespeople because it's hope. And you can stick it in the pipeline at 65%. And it gives you a reason not to prospect new people because you've got to keep phoning up all the ones that said, I don't know. But they're now friends. You've got a relationship with them because you've met with them. All the shit that salespeople tell themselves to stop them doing their job. Right? So I cut through all of that. Look, we're either going to move forwards or we're going to end it. And my job is to help you come to that conclusion by the end of this meeting. That's it. That's my job. That is your job. It's not that hard. It just takes guts. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. Where do you find that confidence? I mean, you come over as an incredibly confident person. Has that always been the case? Have you always, have you always felt that way? Have I? I think I've always been confident. But confidence isn't the problem that most salespeople have. I've never met a sales person that lacks confidence. In fact, when I get in front of a CEO, because that's the one thing that comes up a lot, is I think, my God, they just lack a little confidence. They just need a little bit of... And I say, can I ask you a question? If I was to pick any one of your sales team and take them to the pub with me right now, would they have a problem striking up a conversation with someone at the bar? Almost certainly not. No. The answer's always no. Like I said, they don't have a confidence problem, then, do they? And then they go, no, I, I guess they don't. I go, so what is? It's beliefs. We act in a manner that's consistent with our belief structure. And most people in sales have shitty beliefs because we're all taught certain things as children, all of us, that we've never were told don't apply as a grown-up. Yeah? And so I, I went through all those rules and I ditched them. I, I phoned up my mum and dad and said, I love you, but you're no longer coming to work with me. And once you let go of the rules your mum and dad gave you as a kid, it's amazing, liberating. It means I can part my... I am allowed to talk about money. Remember, as kids, you weren't allowed to talk about money. Yeah, I'm allowed to say no. I'm allowed to ask tough questions. I don't have to answer a question. All of the things I was taught as a kid that I had to do, I just ditched. I'm a grown-up. I'm an adult. And I'm talking to someone that's my peer. And I'm going to engage them as my equal. Just because they got money doesn't make them better than me. I've got something they may need or want. Their money's useless unless I'm willing to give them my services if they need it. So... I got rid of money as an issue. Money doesn't mean anything to me. I like money, like everyone, but I'm not attached to it. How I get the money is more important than whether or not I get it. Most salespeople don't look at that. They look at getting it as opposed to how they get it. Yeah. Yeah, I've woven this more and more into my narrative over the last few years as well, which is a very similar thing, which is this idea that unless you're calling up and getting very quickly to the point of the kind of the, the heart of the problems that you solve for the people you're speaking to, they recognize that you, the salesperson, you, the recruiter, 
are the one with the problem. You're the one with the target. You're the one who's being told to get out there and make a sale. And actually, they don't have any problems at all from that perspective, unless you engage them in the, in, in the right kind of messaging and unless you get them to uh, see straight away that they do actually have a problem and, and, and that you're able to articulate it, really press on it, and then, and then create the, the environment for them being vulnerable to, to talk to you about that problem. I mean, recruiting people can be an extremely painful, frustrating and annoying process. But very few recruiters phone up to talk about that. They phone up to talk about, we can do this, we can do that. But if you don't tap into their... Some people don't have that experience. They have perfectly good recruitment experiences. But most salespeople approach it with the same brush. And so, yeah, you're right. When I was doing... I sucked at recruitment. Like I said, I set a company record. was there for six months and recruit anybody. Um, (laughs) Uh, it was it was it was a personal goal of mine. People love that story because they always think you're going to say, "Oh, you smashed target." No, no, no. I didn't hire anyone. I was shit. But what I was good at was getting appointments. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, so uh, yeah, you, you are right. So look, as I say, well, I've got a few questions from from the recruiting better community, and um, I love to do this with with these kinds of shows because people hear enough uh, hear, hear enough from me. So I just want to get straight into some questions that that I've been asked and wanted to pass on. So a, a, a bit of a classic question. It's a bit of an old question, but but I know that that Jane was really keen to to understand this, in particular in light of all the stuff that's happening with AI, with sequencing, with and and, and the kind of the advancements in technology around how people can send sales emails. And Jane simply wants to know whether you feel like cold calling is is dead. Oh, God, this comes up every bloody time. Um, uh, Even if cold calling were dead and taken over by AI, you should still do it. And the reason I say that is because you cannot get good at selling by sitting behind a fucking screen typing messages. This is a real world, real time, real people interaction. You don't get that from sending emails or sequences. You don't get that from text messages because you get the opportunity to sit and think and mull it over. And In the real world, you've got to be like that. And that means you have to learn how to listen, you have to learn how to think quickly, and you learn have to learn how to ask better questions quicker and faster. You get none of that by sitting behind the screen waiting for a lead to come in. So even if AI, and I believe AI will remove the need for human beings to make prospecting calls i would still say do it because otherwise you're going to be learning and practicing when you get in front of real people that's not where you should be learning how to sell mm-hmm. so it sounds as though there's the, the value of cold calling is is in the feedback you get it's in it's in the interaction it's, it's if, if you're unable to talk to someone on a phone for about six minutes and make them feel comfortable wanting to meet with you, then the odds are you're going to be pretty shit when you get in front of them face to face if you can't do that. And if AI is doing it for you, I love it because whenever I get in front of companies, they always say pretty much the same thing. We're great when we're in front of people. We're just not in front of enough people. So then they start getting in front of more people and they start to realize we don't sell as much as we thought. Yeah. No, because you're also crap. Yeah, when you're in front of people, but you're so focused on the getting in front of them, it's never when we're there. And it's it's just, yeah. So, yeah. So, no, cold calling, you still need to... Most companies I work with cold call all the time. I work with companies that are worth over a billion pounds, and they built it from cold calling. So the idea that humans talking to humans isn't going to be important for a sales career is nonsense. I know why they don't want to do it, because it sucks. Prospecting sucks. Yeah. But so does every job. I just had to go see the doctor the other day and he had to do something that I thought, fuck knows how anyone want to do this. <laughs> yeah, don't go into detail. So. For a living, right? And it's like, I, 
I, it's just that I, I respect him, but I wouldn't want to do what he does. I get paid more than the doctor too. But I don't have to do half the stuff he does, so... But you don't have to do that much prospecting, right, these days, and I guess that's part of the, you know, the, 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 the exit strategy is we do sales, we build up a pipeline, we build up, you know, a brand, we build up a positioning for ourselves, and you reach a point where you don't have to do prospecting forever, am I right? Exactly, and that's what I, I stress to all my clients and all the people that I work with. Prospecting isn't forever. The irony of life is when you get really good at something, you don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. Right. And so the journey of becoming good at prospecting is the journey to exit prospecting, because once you get to a point where you're really good at it, you've done so much of it. You've got enough customers and clients and reputation that uh, people start coming to you. Now, you still got to disqualify our inbound lead. An inbound lead is exactly the same as an outbound cold call. The only difference is the head trash inside of your head. Just because someone phones you up and says they're interested in what you have, that's probably a lie. Yeah, but salespeople seem to think they're different. No, the only thing that's different is what's going on between your ears. The rest of the call, other than the opener, is virtually going to be the same. That's why telephone prospecting is so important, because it doesn't end when you stop doing it. You're still going to be on the phone talking to people that are phoning you. I hear that. I hear that. It got me curious, because I think for recruiters, the market has shifted quite a lot in the last probably six months for, for most industries. Uh, we've gone from a place where recruiters were kind of fighting employers off with a stick to um, to, to kind of, uh, you know, the employers were coming to them with lots of jobs to a point where now recruiters are having to go out and do more prospecting, pick up the phone, get in front of people, really kind of push on business development. And that, that piece you mentioned around that, inbound lead or the inbound opportunity being just the same as reaching out to somebody kind of intrigued does that mean that you follow a similar kind of process in terms of the the kind of problem menu type approach and and and, and those sorts of things yes uh, the assumption is because someone's come to you they're warm uh, but think about the number of things you've inquired about in your life that you've never bought yeah, a lot of the times inbound opportunities are simple intellectual exercises. They want to gather some information. They want to pick your brain. They're thinking about hiring somebody, but they don't really know what the salary should be. So fuck it. Let's call a desperate recruiter and tell them we're interested in looking for someone. Pick their brain. Uh, then give some cockable excuses to why we can't meet. Then take the knowledge they've given us and put it in the job spec. So prospects do that all the time. You're allowed to do it. So don't get pissed off that a prospect does it to you. It's your fault if you let it happen. So when someone phones me up, well, actually, I, I, I actually make people pay to talk to me. Mm -hmm. That's my first disqualification. If they're not willing to pay, it eliminates 80% of tire kickers. Um, every now and then, just test the theory. I let someone talk to me for free. And every time someone that talks to me for free, they always end up ghosting you. Mm. They just disappear. It's fascinating. So uh, I, I regard inbound as just like outbound because other than the opening introductory bit, the rest of the conversation is pretty much the same. Uh, it shouldn't. What, what's going to change? They phone you up and say, we're struggling to find somebody. Mm -hmm. Well, that's my key. Now I'm straight in with my questioning. So nothing will change other than the intro. Can I ask you a, uh, a professional and, and, and maybe slightly technical question? And look, we can, we can cut this from the show if it, if it goes nowhere. Um, do you, have you worked with recruiters who do paid discovery calls, who charge for their, their consultation calls? Uh, I haven't worked... How do I put this? I've worked with people that didn't do that, but they'd learned how to do it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, most companies I've worked with, if they have the courage to do it, can end up charging for something that they were doing for three. It's normally that middle step, selling proposals, selling quotes. Um, I mean, I point out the reason people drive around with vans that say free quotes. Why is that? Because at some point, all the people used to pay for this stuff. Free quotes was a marketing strategy introduced, I don't know how long ago, to replace paid quotes. Right. Yeah. And virtually everything you purchase in life, you pay for up front. I've just bought flights to Ireland. I can't pay them after the flight if I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've just, I've just paid for a hotel. You know, I paid up front, you know. I could pay afterwards, but they've got my credit card, so I've actually already effectively paid. Um, there are, with the exception of restaurants, virtually everything in life you pay for up front before you even tried it or used it. You go to McDonald's and say, I'll pay you after the meal if I liked it. Or the cinema, I'll, I'll pay you on the way out if the film was worth it. A teenager with zits can tell you to fuck off, yet some guy... <laughs> in a suit and tie selling an expensive bit of kit like recruitment or technology has to do stuff for free oh that's the way it's done you've got to do it otherwise you'll upset them it's just wimpiness yeah i hear that i hear that and i share that a lot in in the processes that i share so in the in the in the kind of the the playbooks that that i take the recruitment businesses recruitment leaders that i work with through we really look at that piece around paid paid discovery paid consultation really thinking about when is the right time when are you when are you providing your client with enough value or where can you provide your client with enough value early in the cycle that that you actually should be getting paid for because as you say otherwise we get into a place where they see us as someone who they can take advantage of the 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 power dynamic completely shifts the person with the problem is now the recruiter which I think is usually kind of almost a given, right? The, the employers tend to tolerate recruiters because they know they they recognise the recruiter's got a problem, but they also think, oh, may, maybe I've got a problem. And if we sell right, we get them to a place where they are in you know burning need of solving their problem. And the fact that we've got a problem and a target and a quota to hit is is almost ignored because a client's problem is so valuable to them. You hear the desperation in the voices. So I'm currently in the process of like buying a property. And if you see a property you like, but the real estate agent doesn't get back to you, as the person that wants a property, I then start chasing them because they have something I want. But when it's the other side, when it's not a property I'm interested, you're constantly chased by real estate agents trying to flog you a, couple, a, a property. And you hear the desperation. So what salespeople and recruiters have to remember is that you have the solution, they have the problem. The only thing they have is choice of where they spend their money. And that's where your skills as a salesman kick in because your job is to get them to see that you are the person they should give their money to. I always hear salespeople say, but they can go wherever they like, yes. And if they choose to go with someone else over you, whose fault's that? Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not the prospects, it's yours, because you failed to get them to realise that you were the person they should give money to. The other person managed to do it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It makes you wonder, right, why why particularly, and I see this through the lens of spending all of my career in the recruitment industry, mm-hmm. but it makes you wonder why recruiters haven't developed more effective strategies for sales. I suspect you see that across more industries than just recruitment, right? That but is. I don't know whether that's something you've reflected on, whether you've kind of thought about why recruiters or, or why salespeople in general miss the mark so often. I'm going to say something brutal that people aren't going to like. But let's be brutally blunt here. Recruiters very rarely offer any skill or value. 
They're professional paper shufflers. They take a CV from there and they put it there. And in between they do fuck all. They just hope. You throw enough of those out and a certain number will stick. You'll hit your target. There's no skill in that process. There's no real skill in qualifying. Is this someone we really want to take on? Is this, like, you know, they do top line stuff. Same with um, the real estate agents. I'm amazed at the number that you, you put in, I'm interested in this property. First thing, let's arrange a viewing. It's a whole lot. Viewings take time. You gotta travel there, you gotta, you could be stuck. Why are you in a rush to get me in front of the, why not ask some questions to figure out, actually, now that I've asked you these questions, this property isn't right for you based on, I know it looks like it on the website, but what you've just told me, it's not right for you. Now, if they're adamant and insist they want to see it, then maybe, but. I've got to challenge you on that though, right? I've got to challenge you on that. Challenge me. There is so much good that recruiters do do. Now, there are a lot of recruiters. I will agree with you to a certain extent. There are a lot of recruiters who don't create too much value for their clients who don't do that much consulting. But when recruitment's done right, and by the fast, well, by, by an increasing group of, of recruiters at the moment, there's a real push on, okay, how do we really help organizations understand and benchmark the way they define what good looks like in a role against the industry and based on, on the data that we have available to us? How do we redesign assessment strategies to be kind of up to date for for like the modern world i mean the idea that you would wait a week between having video interviews is crazy you know t five years ago when we were interviewing face to face i had to wait a week because i had a doctor's in i had a, a doctor's appointment on this tuesday and i had to week wait a week b before i could get away from my desk again but now when things are done over zoom and i'm working from home. I could interview twice in the same day. There's no need for that to happen. So recruiters are talking now to their clients about how assessment strategies work and, and, and how they can build those out to be more effective. And then the third piece is how are talking to clients about how they sell their roles. The fourth one might be diversity. The fifth one might be technology. But there are all these elements that recruiters are starting to bring in to, to really improve their service. And I think the, the days of a paper shuffling recruiter are increasingly behind us. I'd like to hope that anyway. I'd like to hope that. I agree. I always make sweeping generalizations because it's far more dramatic. But obviously, yes, there are recruiters out there. Because there, I've met some recruitment firms and they say, we already charge for that. We already charge for that. So there are recruiters out there who get paid for everything that they do, every step of the way they've monetized it. And, and they're the elites and they're the good ones. And yet you get all these ones underneath them saying it can't be done. Well, how are they doing it? And you're not. Oh, well, that's different. They've been around a lot longer and they got... No, they got better salespeople. That's all they've got. And they have a belief in what they're doing. This is it. I mean, I fell into recruit. I needed a job. Mm -hmm. This is not something you, 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 you grow up aspiring to be. You know, I want to be a recruitment consultant because that, that's the most noble and honorable of professions there are. And I want to be part of that. No, I needed a job. And then you get the shittiest of training. And then you're basically let out on the road and it's basically get in front of enough people, throw up in front of enough and statistically you'll end up making a deal. And so because, like I say, you know, it takes five years to qualify as a barrister, then you're a junior. Seven years to qualify as a doctor, then you're a junior. Four years as an account, then you're a junior. These people pay to study for years to learn their craft. To be considered a professional recruitment consultant takes two days product knowledge training, a new suit, a CRM system. You are one! 
Yeah, and it's like, what? And, and now I'm a consultant? Yeah, yeah, you're now a recruitment consultant. But I don't know, don't worry, most people, you just, just, just go out there and blag it, you'll be fine. It's a numbers game at the end of the day. <laughs> That's not a professional skill set. Standing out in your sector is becoming harder than ever. Lots of people are making noise, saturating the market with the same old drill tones. So if you want to stand out, it's time to start a podcast. Yes, there's loads of podcasts out there, but how many of them are actually in your niche? Do any of them speak to your perspective on the market? I didn't think so. Podcasting not only sets you apart as an innovative thinker in your market, it's great content for repurposing. Here at Search That, we help you become the voice of your industry. We can stretch your content and turn it into a content goldmine, leveling up your personal brands and recruitment marketing in the process. Sounds good, doesn't it? Well, to find out more, head over to searchdat.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Okay, let's shift gears a little bit. So I've got a, another question here from a consultant called Mike, and it comes back to this idea of cold calling. We're going to stay here for a little while, but um, Mike wants to know, like, in terms of researching and personalizing his cold calls, how should he go about that? And is that something he should be, he should be kind of worried about in terms of making his cold calls personalized and, and, and well-researched? Well, I analyze that there are three types of recruitment call. There's the call where you're blindly phoning around looking for any job. Yeah, that's like out of the out of the rack cold calling. So you've got a list of companies and you've been told, try and get us in front of them. So you have no idea. Then you've got the ones, then you've got a call where you know the company actually has a job on. Mm-hmm. So that's far more different. Now you're going in specifically because you know there's a job. It's not blindly phoning. There's a job. And the third one is you've actually found a really fucking good candidate who you think most companies would snap this guy up if they knew this person existed. So I'm going to try and phone up and stuff. So you've got three different types of calls. So each one are different. However... You don't need to do a lot of research because you're a recruitment consultant. You should know everything about the marketplace. You're not phoning up companies having to learn new things. It's like, no, I know. I know what a finance director in a pharmaceutical company does on a day-to-day basis because I recruit them. So I don't have to phone up and figure out anything about you. What I need to figure out is, from my experience, what are the frustrations, pains, and irritations that people go through when trying to recruit these people? That's what I talk about because they'll be able to say, Actually, I relate to all of those. Or actually, we have none of those, Benjamin. Our, our recruitment process is so slick that we've eliminated that. Then fine, you obviously don't need us because we only work with people that suffer from these problems. Yeah? So that's how we go about it. So it never ch- you don't need to do a lot of research. You meet the odd dickhead when you are prospecting that says things, What do you know about my company? So, well, what do I need to know? What could I possibly say here that will satisfy this? Right? Yeah, I suggest you go away before you phone me again. It's like, whatever, yeah? Those are few and far between, but salespeople have a habit of holding on to experiences for dear life. Yeah? It happened once, so therefore it could happen again, therefore I need to avoid this moment. And then then they build their entire process based on trying to avoid that happening. When... When was the last time it happened? Well, it happened three years ago. So why are you behaving like it's going to happen again? So no, you don't need to do much research. All I need to know to phone a company is the name of the managing director and a phone number. And the rest of it is I know the pains that managing directors are suffering if they have shit salespeople. I just talk about them. If he says I don't have them, fine. Yeah? So no, you don't need to do a lot of research. 
But if you see, yeah, but limited, but no. Research is procrastination. It's a tool used to avoid doing your job. Yeah, I hear that. I hear that. I, th- I think what that probably speaks to, maybe if I'm reading this right, is the fact that if you do less research, you make a higher volume of calls and you're going to get a greater volume of success than if you spend more time doing the research and, and, and delaying the calls, right? I've seen it happen. You see some guy spends 20 minutes researching your company on LinkedIn, finally picks up the phone to call the guy and say he's not in today. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's where, oh, then they'd start again with another one. It's just phone. Why not find out if they're in before you even research, right? That might be yeah, a good... Yeah. No, it, it, it's all about avoidance. That is why people research. It's to avoid the actual act of prospecting. Hey, look, we had um, Will Allred, one of the co-founders of a company called Lavender, on um, a few a few weeks ago on, on the show. Uh, Will was talking about email outreach. You, you might be familiar with their tool. It's kind of an AI tool that helps um, salespeople and recruiters write emails that get responses. And uh, one of the things that he was talking about was kind of market segmentation and, and kind of building lists that are centered around the problems that you solve. And the, therefore, you can be really crispy and really relevant without having to be really highly personalized, like calling somebody up and saying, hey, I, I, saw, I see that you went to university in, uh, in, in Dorset is not really like, you know, going to be the thing that's going to land it compared to, hey, when I speak to people like you, they typically tell me they have these three problems. You're probably going to tell me that none of that applies to you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 this trying to dare yourself to somebody we, we went to the same school or we like the same. It's kind of creepy on many levels, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, no, but you, you, you are right. I mean, you will talk to a managing director different than you would a finance director because they view the business very differently and they have different challenges and different problems. So you can't just have a one-fits-all prospecting call for everyone. If I'm phoning finance directors selling in financial software, then I have a particular set of pains that will be unique to the majority or the preponderance of finance directors in this area that software fixes. Yeah, and likewise with managing directors or Sierra, whoever. So yeah, you have to have, you need to have a prospect profile, without doubt. And then you create the message that is designed to resonate with their profile. So advertisers, every brand in the world does this, the Cokes, the Pepsis, the Unilevers, they know who buys their product. You know, they know it's a woman aged between 35 to 42, professionally educated, has 2.4 children, a disposable income of X. So we create messages that will appeal to a woman in that category. And so you watch it as a middle-aged white male with no children living on benefits, and that advert means absolutely nothing to you because you're not the intended recipient of the message. So yes. You have to segment and you have to have prospect profile and you have to have different messaging for different prospects. Absolutely. So if we fast forward into the the sales conversation, one of the things that people commonly find, I've got a question here from from Ben, actually a consultant that I I worked with uh, a little while ago. Um, And his question at the time was, you can open up conversations by kind of presenting problems and talking to clients about the problems that he solves. But one of the challenges he, he has is that he reckons that, that a lot of people deny that they have problems. He recognizes that he's a stranger. He's a salesperson. God, you know, even worse, he's a recruiter. Right. Why would this person open up and kind of be vulnerable and confess their problems to him? So his question is, like, is there anything in the call or in the conversation that he can be doing to to really help the client open up a little bit more, feel safe and secure in in confessing their vulnerabilities or, or, or confessing their problem? 
Okay, so this is a very contextual question because it all comes down to what they're saying and how they're saying it. So I get this. So so the, the generic answer is it's not that challenging. Um, if you have the right pain points and you do, so you lead with your three. So I lead with my three statistically most likely ones to hit home. So whenever I prospect, I get through it at MD. I go, look, you're probably frustrated. You've got sales guys that are reluctant or not motivated to pick up the phone. Or if they do pick up the phone, they sound a little wimpy and always get fobbed off with excuses like send me an email. Or you got none of those. You actually do get in front of people. But when you do, your guys are too quick to discount. Or they spend their time kissing frogs, quoting and hoping and not closing. Now, they either say... I don't recognize it. Or they say, no, I, I can relate to someone. As soon as I've got them saying I can relate or I recognize, I've got my hook. The next bit of the call is how do I nurture them through the pro? I call it the emotional grinder. I'm slowly going to emotionally grind them to a point. It's only like six questions, but it's questions of curiosity. So rather than as soon as you hear it, say, great. Well, well, why don't I explain to you how we can help? It's okay. Well, help me out. So we're on to say, can you give me an example of what you mean when you say your guys aren't picking up? Now, everyone says, well, isn't that a dumb question to ask? Because you asked him. And isn't he then going to say to you, well, what do you mean give you an example? You phoned me up. This never happens. Salespeople create these scenarios that never happen. Right? What happens is, is when you say, can you give me an example? They go, yeah, sure. Like last week, for instance. And then they start to tell a story. The number one thing every human loves talking about is themselves. Once you get them talking about themselves and their business, you'll be amazed how much they talk. But salespeople are going in it from the, I need to go and impress them with how amazingly awesome we are. I need to show them just how brilliant we are. And I'm going to be the smartest person on that call. Whereas I go in and I'm going to be the dumbest person on it. What, sorry, what, what do you mean they're not picking up the phones? Can you give me an example? Oh, okay. Uh, well, I, I, this can't be happening. That ha This hasn't been happening long though, right? This is a fairly recent thing. Oh, no, no, no. It's been going on. Oh, but, yeah, but you've done something to fix it in the last few months. Well, we've tried this. Well, it must have worked then. Uh, well, no. Uh, what do you mean, no? Well, no, it hasn't. Oh, okay, so help me out. Do you think it's cost? And I'm just slowly getting them to open up and answering key questions. How long they've had the problem, what they've done to try and fix it, is it costing them money? They don't realize they're giving me vital information that's going to help me say, okay, well, look, I don't know if I can fix this, but let's pretend I could and you believed our solution could eliminate that for you. What would you do? Well, yeah, I'd be interested. Well, have you got your diary there? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's getting out of your own way. It's stop phoning up. To, I always say this to salespeople. If you're in the pub and you saw someone you were attracted to at the bar, would you go up and start the conversation the way you do cold calls? You're asking the wrong person, Benjamin. I'll be honest. But uh... It's like, hi, what's your name? It's Sarah. Hey, shut up, Sarah. I'm going to talk about me for the next two minutes. <laughs> I mean, what are the odds of getting laid? You know, it's pretty slim, right? So... For some reason, though, when you put a salesman on a phone, they suddenly turn into this bizarre, let me talk to you about me. Mm. And then they wonder why no one likes them or gets rude or hangs up or is abusive. It's, yeah, I would be, too. Indeed, indeed. I think that analogy really stands up. I'm not going to dwell on it too much. But we do have a, uh, uh, another question um, from, from a guy called Tim. Um, and Tim wants to know... A little bit more about this psycho the, the psychology piece so you mentioned the emotional grinder there right and and this idea that it feels as though getting a client emotional is a is a really important part of it um 
Tim says that sometimes when he books meetings, he feels like the client has bought in logically, it all makes sense, and then he doesn't, they, they don't show up. And he's, he's really wondering whether there's anything more he can do to, to, to get clients feeling emotional through their call, through through his calls, or even in the kind of the follow up after the call, whether it's okay to kind of mention the the emotions that they were showing in a call to to, to try and encourage them to show up for meetings. Well, the problem is is people buy emotionally and justify intellectually. So if again, it's all context. You have to hear what these people are saying to be able to really help them. Um, but the structure I teach is designed to move someone from intellect to emotion. And when I say emotion, I'm not talking tears or anything like that. It's just enough for them to have a feeling, a gut feeling that says, huh, All right, mate, okay, maybe you have something. Because the sales meeting is where we do the diagnosis. So I see the cold call as being the when you phone up a doctor and he says, well, describe your symptoms to me. And then you describe your symptoms and then he says, nah, look, whatever you've got, it'll be gone in a few days. There's no need to come and see me. It's fine. Yeah. Or he says, hmm, that's interesting. There, there, there could be something there. Why don't you come in and see me? Now, it doesn't mean at the end of that he's going to sell you a prescription. I have to do a proper diagnosis now. So all my skills and knowledge and medical training kick in. And for that 45 minutes that I've got you, I ask you lots of questions. When did, this, when did you first recognize it? What have you done to try and fix it? How long have you had it? When you do this, does that happen? Have you ever? And he, and he goes all his questions. At the end of that, he says, I think we need to run more tests. Or he says, I, I have a diagnosis. I'm going to give you a prescription. And then he gives you the prescription. You may say, but I don't want to take drugs. He says, well, I don't care. You either take them or you don't take them. This is the prescription for the diagnosis. Or it could be, look, to be honest, there is really nothing here to worry about. Um... I would just give it a few weeks, and if it's still recurring, then maybe we should talk further. That's what we're doing as a sale. So the prospecting call is just enough for them to say, hmm, maybe I should maybe I should spend a little bit longer with you trying to figure out if there is something here. Um, and if your intellectual conversations tend to be, well, why don't we come in and show you what we do? And then if you like what we see, and so a lot of people to get rid of you just say, fine. They capitulate. Yeah, because... You haven't taken the hint. So the easiest way to get rid of a salesman is say, fine, I'll be there. But as soon as I hang up, I say salespeople are like poo sticks, if you don't want to be by poo stick. You know, when you were a kid, you go to the bridge and you have a stick and you'd throw it in and then you'd race to see it. That's a poo stick. We're poo sticks. The moment the is <laughs> finished, you're chucked into the river and you just drift off into oblivion. And most of the time, they don't remember you existed. So I, I know I'm a poo stick. So if I've intellectually convinced them to meet with me, I know the odds of them turning up probably isn't going to happen. But once in 10, it does. So salespeople hold on to that once in 10 experience. Try and repeat it. Filling their pipeline with, 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 with good old hopium, right? Hopium, um, yeah. The most powerful drug in the world, only exclusive uh, to sales folk. Hopium. So... You've got a technique for overcoming that, haven't you? you? You kind of address buyer's remorse head on or, or not necessarily even buyer's remorse, but the fact that you know that a client may put the phone down and decide not to meet you. Oh, yeah. You mean the pattern interrupt? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is funny because you are. When I started writing about pattern interrupts, it must have been about 2016, I believe. I got a lot of flack. 
I used to get a lot of abuse, which was fun because I was starting out, I had something like 1,700 followers on LinkedIn, maybe. So you'd have a lot of people saying, that's bullshit. And what I started doing then was I started cold calling people and filming it. I called it the LinkedIn Lover Series. And all the people that had harassed me online who said, this is rubbish, it would never work in the real world if you called me. So I started phoning them and doing it. And all of them fell for it, you know, because it's very easy sitting behind your keyboard with the safety of all of that to say something won't work or that would work. Because when you're reading about it online, you're sitting there, you're thinking it through, you're debating it. But when it happens to you in the moment, it throws you. So when someone finds out, I'll be up front, this is a sales call. So do you want to hang up now? Let me have 30 seconds. Very rarely sitting there, oh, I've been waiting for this. I've been waiting for this moment. This is it. <laughs> yes. And then you come back with your, no, I'm not, because that's a stupid... No, it doesn't happen. What happens is it's like, uh, uh yeah, sure. You know what I get myself on when I, when I make those calls and when I, when I use that pattern interrupt is yeah. one, one of two things, actually. Either they'll laugh, and yes. I know at that point I've caught them in that like yeah. monkey brain, chimp brain thing where they're kind of that release of tension. Yeah. Uh, or they'll say, well, it depends what it's about. And in my intro, in my pattern interrupt, I've said, hey, can I grab 30 seconds to tell you what it's about? And they say, well, it depends what it's about. And it's, it's really funny that they, there's no logic there. That's no. pure emotional babble, right? As they're, as, they're, as they're kind of logical brain is coming online. It's a set scripting and it's a, well, it depends what it's about. I said, well, that's why I've just asked for 30 seconds to explain what it's about. So, yeah, it's, it's a way to take back control. You see, we're always locked in power dynamics. And when you're phoning at director level, one of the reasons why that pattern interrupt, I'll be up front, this is sales school, do you want to hang up, is so effective at director level, is because I'm actually telling them what to do. They mm -hmm. don't like to be told what to do. So it's almost a gut reaction. So when you say, do you want to hang up? It's like, no, don't you fucking tell me to hang up. Yeah? So that's why you tend to get a, a you either get the, well, it depends what it's about. That's in trying to wrestle back control. Yeah, or you get the one that's more laid back and laughs. And most of the time you get laughter. You've probably discovered most of the time you get <laughs> quite like that. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a different opener. I'll, I'll hear you out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the thing is delivering it right, saying it right, um, and realizing that it will not always work. I get, nothing anyone teaches is foolproof 100% of the time. It will fail. But I'm happy with 90%. Yeah, yeah. People are upset. It didn't work. I did it 10 times and it failed twice. Well, 80% is pretty good. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Absolutely. I have one last question for you, if it's okay. And um, All right. you can answer this any way you like. It's, it's, it's quite a broad uh, question. And the question is, so you, as I say, the, the pattern interrupt is something that, that, that kind of, I think lots of people will recognize you for, as is what we've talked about in terms of your very direct style, your um, understanding or your, your, the way that you articulate that kind of piece around making sales emotional and, and getting your clients emotional. And, and the idea that all of what you do is very centered on the problems that you solve, particularly in the, in the space of cold calling. But I wonder if there are any particular techniques that you particularly enjoy training or particularly enjoy sharing with your clients that, um, that still make you kind of, still make you smile? Um, yeah, so um, I have a great, I, I literally just uh, had a meeting this morning before I came to London um, with a colleague that's been, not a colleague, someone who's worked with me um, from DPD. And they've just landed uh, a big 
client and the MD of this particular franchise, he said, he goes, he goes, Benjamin, it was that question that you gave us. And he goes, so we've been trying to get in front of this company for a while and eventually they said, yes, come and see us. And he goes, so my sales lady, she, she decided, she said, I'm going to use the question, Benjamin, because they've asked us to come and see them. And it's a question I made up in the back of a cab uh, years ago on the way to a meeting because I, I had the same epiphany. And it was, I think they might want to work with me, but I don't know. And then I remember thinking, well, I don't want to run a sales meeting if they if I just have to take an order. And I was thinking, how do I get how do I get around this? How do I how do I how do I how do I deal with this straight away? And it came to me. And I'd never done it in the real world. So for me it was fuck knows what's gonna happen, but we'll see, right? And so she used this line too. And what I did, I got in front of the CEO, just a sheet, and she said, Look, before we start, do you mind if I ask you a really weird question? And everyone says, Yeah, sure, go on. I go, Are you sure? It's 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 very odd. And I go, no, no, now they're begging you. So you can pretty much say whatever you like. And I go, okay, so my question is this. Have you already decided you want to work with us? And the purpose of this meeting is to figure out what that would look like. Or do we need to convince you by the end of this conversation that we're someone you should work with? And every time you get this, that's a it's a good question, yeah? See, now I'm winning because I've already demonstrated with my opening question that I'm, I'm a smart guy, but I haven't done it by saying, look at me how smart I am. I've, in fact, dumbed myself down and said, look, it's an odd question, I understand. And then they think about it and you get several responses. And, and when it happened to me the first time, the first time I did this, the guy looked at me and laughed. He goes, that's a really good question. Um, and he leans back and says, dude, because now he's thinking. And then being a ball breaker, he came back with a very good answer. He said, let me put it this way. This is yours to lose. That's a typical power play move. But what he's not done is answer my question. Now, I'm very big on if I ask a question, I want the answer. So I don't let people off the hook. So I looked, I, I give him a stroke. I said, I like that. I said, that's a really good answer. I said, that's really good. So make him feel good. But they're not going to go in for the punch. I said, however, if we do work together, one of the first things I'll teach you is you can't lose something you never had. I said, so what are you telling me? And he laughed. He goes, <laughs> he goes, yes, yes. I, I actually do want to work with you, Benjamin. I said, so all we need to do is figure out what you want done, when you want to do it, and can you afford my fee? He goes, pretty much. Walked out with the order. Yeah? Yeah, and so salespeople can often spend in an hour 10 minutes selling and 50 minutes talking it back. What they got to learn to do is read the room. How did we get here? Why are we here? Who are we? Who is that in relation? And ask them. Sometimes they're ready to actually just give you money. Because they've made the decision emotionally. We're meeting with ABC Company. I like what they do. I cannot be asked going through process of meeting three or four others. If they tick these boxes on the day, let's just buy. They've already done that before you get in. So I go, why don't I just figure out, have you done that? <laughs> if they haven't, it's a sales meeting. If they have, I'll take an order. It's a great story. It's a great story. And I think what it shows in a microcosm in that really brief exchange that you had with that CEO that day is the fact that the best way to build credibility is through asking really smart questions. And the second best way to build credibility is to be tenacious about seeking out the answers to those questions. Right. And if you do, if you do those two things, actually, it feels to me as even even if 
that person was was looking to interrogate you or weigh you up and see if you were somebody that they wanted to work with in 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 that short process in that short five minute conversation you probably did as much to convince them that you were the right person to work with as you could have done in a whole hour of talking about god forbid features and benefits and taking them through your uh, your, your your slide deck and all the rest of it right how you behave, how you act will determine whether or not someone buys from you. So selling is not what you do, it's how you do it. Just like there are lots of lawyers and lots of surgeons, some are really good, some aren't as good. But they're all practicing the same thing. So it's got nothing to do with the subject matter, the law or medicine, it's that some are just better at it than others. How they do it is far more efficient and far better than others. So you got to focus on how you sell, not what you sell. And too many people are focused on what we do, how we do it, why we do it, what motivates us. But as a prospect, I don't give two fucks about any of that. What I want to know is, can you take away my pain? And if so, am I willing to pay for it? Love it. Love it. Hey, we were talking at the very start of the call about the fact that you are, um, you're, you're planning a move away from the UK. So I'm wondering now whether, um, whether that means it'll be even more difficult to get time in your diary, even more difficult to get time face to face with the uh, the UK's most hated sales trainer. Yes, yes, we've decided in a few, a couple of years time. So I've got some stuff I need to put into place, but um, we're going to relocate to the Caribbean for a couple of years. Um, I want to give my daughter a different cultural experience. Um, obviously, she'll 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 be just coming into her teen years then, and that's a perfect time to take her out of the UK and let her experience a whole new life. Um, it means I'll literally get to be one of those YouTubers who says, look at me on my desert island. And it's not, you know, so I thought that's going to be a lot of fun, but I want to do it. So yeah, so one of the things is I'm going to scale back the in-house training. I'm doing a lot more stuff online. COVID revolutionized that. In-house training tends to be corporate, whereas online tends to be individuals. And I'll be upfront when it comes to sales training. It's better to work with individuals and corporates because at the end of the day, corporates don't really care. They just want to tick a box, da-da-da-da-da. The people are often there kind of want to be there, kind of don't want to be there, half in, half out. Whereas the people that come on my coaching clubs and do the one-to-one, they're there out of their own money. They run their own business or they really want to succeed in their role as a salesperson. So they really take the material and run with it. So I'm going to focus more on that. And I can do that from a beach. Mm-hmm. I don't need to be in the UK. So um, for the experience for my daughter to have a different way of life, to have a different experience, we've decided in a couple of years that, that, that that's that's the move. So two more years, but I'll be doing a lot less in-house stuff. So if people want to see you, people want to get face-to-face with you, people want to um, uh, book time and, and, and attend the, the, the great kind of days, workshops that you do, then they really need to get a wriggle on. They need to, yeah, yeah, because it'll all be winding up within the next year or so. So, yeah, people always delay these things. They leave it till later thinking, yeah, but no, no I am. Uh, the plan of getting good at selling was to ultimately get out of it. Mm-hmm. This is the whole point. Uh, I've, I've done very well out of this um, and I'm still doing well out of it, but it's getting to a point where I can now exit. And that is why people build businesses because they want to exit. Um, I'll always be doing some form of selling and coaching and training on the side, but I'm not going to have to do it all day, every day. It's going to be um, part of my life as opposed to the main driver of my life. 
Well, look, I think I've got to say as well, for so many people that I speak to and so many of the people that I see across kind of the, the Recruiting Better community and across LinkedIn, you've been a massive inspiration for people to really kind of infuse them and encourage them and inspire them in, in selling. You know, like you say, I think there's a lot of kind of stigma and a lot of, I mean, most people in sales, most people in recruitment didn't choose, didn't choose it as a career. You know, the classic line of they, you know, everybody kind of falls into recruitment. But I think you've really given me and so many people that I speak to real inspiration to to go out and become better salespeople and to um, to really kind of revel in in the role of sales and see it as, if not a force for good, at least something that we don't have to be uh, that don't have to be quite so ashamed of and embarrassed about. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And what 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 drives me is selling can be a lonely, miserable place if you're crap at it. And most of us, I was, and most people are, and it's because they're never given the support. They're never really told how to sell. It's just repeated behaviour from someone above you. And normally, it's a very um, ruthless sort of structure. It's the guy that sold the most ends up becoming the manager. But when you break down how we sold, it's like well, a lot of it was luck, good timing. It was the product. had nothing to do with the guy. This is why I say someone giving you money doesn't make you a salesman. I could sit outside a Tesco under the ATM and people would give me money. Yeah? So that's not selling. It's begging. Yeah, you're begging. I don't have a problem with begging. You know, if you can make money from begging, then fine. But I didn't want to be a beggar. I didn't want to spend my life chasing people, begging with people. And then I came to the conclusion you don't have to. Selling is a profession when done well. And it's about how you see yourself and how you behave. And um, it's liberating because now I don't care who I get in front of. Nothing changes for me. I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm going. And it's the prospect who has a better journey because they love they love the exchange. And they say, I, 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 they go, you're so different to everything else we've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, that's it. It's the experience they have. Yeah, and it's got nothing to do with me as a person. I've just got good at it. <laughs> well, I love that. We've managed to bring the conversation, I think, full circle, which is uh, which is always fun. And look, really, really uh, grateful to you for for spending time coming coming on the show, sharing your message with uh, with the audience. And um, yeah, I'd like to just say um, a, a big thank you, Benjamin. No, thank you. The, the, the honour's all mine. I appreciate you asking me. Thank you. Yeah. All the best, and uh, and take care.